Uh, welcome and thank you everybody for joining us for another episode of the Jane Irrigation Training Series. I'm Richard Restucia, your host and Vice President of Water Management Solutions for Jane Irrigation. And today I'm really excited to be talking about plant and irrigation best practices during the drought. Now, one of the reasons I'm excited about this is, uh, well, number one, uh, I, I love plants as well as irrigation. And certainly we're experiencing a tough drought uh, all through the West right now. And uh, so when I can get a real expert like we have today to speak about both these subjects, it's, uh, it's a good day for me. And I know it's gonna be a good day for all of you, right? Because once again, it's not just what happens to your plants during the summertime that matters, but often how you deal with your plants or care for your plants in particular during the drought sets them up for uh, winter and then next year too. So it's a very important time. And uh, uh, the person helping us today is uh, Stacy Sternot. And Stacy is somebody I've known now uh, for about 10 years, I think. Uh, you know, we worked together at uh, Valley Crest and uh, Stacy had the responsibility of Valley Crest, uh, one of Valley Crest and maybe the largest maintenance account for the whole company. And, uh, you know, she has a great reputation for her business skills and her knowledge. Uh, at the time, uh, uh, this was important, right? Dealing with such a large uh, multi-million dollar account because if you lost this account, it meant literally hundreds of people lost their jobs. And uh, so there was a lot of pressure. This was an account that might get renewed uh, uh, every couple of years and uh, a lot of stress there, but and, uh, Stacey handled the business side. Uh, Stacey's now uh, um, the uh, executive uh, operations manager for Landscapes USA and uh, doing a great job for Landscapes USA as well. You know, she's got 27 years experience in the green industry. She uh, helps not only uh, her uh, LUSA, Landscapes USA, she also helps with the CLCA, you know, helping the industry in general, and of course, helping us today. So I mentioned earlier, she's got great business skills and, and uh, more importantly though for today, she's also got excellent knowledge about plants uh, about varieties, and most importantly for today, what works during a drought. So uh, Stacy, uh, thanks for joining us today. Uh, we really appreciate your time. And, uh, you know, I've often said you haven't lived a summer till you live a summer in, uh, in, in landscape. Uh, and certainly we're in August now, so you're more than halfway through. How's it going so far? <laughs> Thanks again for that great introduction to you, Richard. Um, the summer is going how it always does. You know, every year we kind of start ramping up around April 1st and usually last till October, peak growing season out here in, you know, Southern California anyway. Um, it's always a little harder on everybody. We find um, different ways to manage labor and manage the plant growth. Um, obviously, this year it's been a little bit different with, you know, the last year or two of um, COVID trends and that culture kind of changing for labor and everything else. Um, but, you know, typical landscape summer, it's always a little hotter, a little harder on everybody. So we try to make sure that we let the team know how much we appreciate all the hard work they're doing. Um, you know, talking about the weather a little bit earlier, I grew up landscaping in Wisconsin, so that humidity was a little bit different during the summer too. And, um, you know, out, out here, it's all different. So that adaptability, um, just like we have to do with our plant material is really key to the summer. So Stacey, um, 
are customers, uh, so I have two questions about customers right now. One, you know, the supply side or the supply issue and labor issues are is big in, in landscape right now. Mm -hmm. um, are customers settling into uh, or lowering their expectation of when they're receiving things and, and when things are happening? Uh, or are they still being very demanding? Um, it really kind of depends, I think, on the client, on the type of client. Um, I can only speak for, you know, what we do most of our business is in either HOA or commercial. I know there's probably a lot of other landscapers out there that do custom residential or something a little bit different, maybe um, city work and that kind of thing. So I see on the HOA side, um, there's still very demanding because for still most of the case, a lot of people are working from home. Um, so whether they're homeowners or board members, everybody is still at home viewing the landscape for most of their day. And so there's still a demand for making sure it looks nice. Um, on the commercial side of things, um, there's a little more adaptability because on both ends, I guess, because um, you know there's been less leasing, less tenants um, in all of the spaces. So that's changed the landscape climate a little bit, as well as kind of push back the demand too, because you don't have as many people visiting large commercial facilities or industrial parks and that kind of thing. Um, as far as the supply goes, and I know it's been happening for a while um, on the chemical and irrigation part side for us, um, just being able to get material at the right time. Uh, plant material has been something that's happened recently, um, just from the demand, not only across the country, um, here in California, there's a lot of growers, right? A lot of nurseries, a lot of field grown operations and the other operations throughout the country that haven't been able to adhere to the demand across the country, whether it be frost that started last year or just kind of the up and um, purchasing, you know, they have, so we're getting a lot of our nurseries emptied out here. Um, I used to manage the inventory, I was con inventory control manager over at local nursery here in Miramar, it's village now, but you know, it was kind of this up and down cycle of the season with plant material, knowing how many thousands of plant plugs you needed to grow in and when and buy in. And sometimes there was also the plant trends and that's definitely changing now. You can see that trend just kind of dropping and you know, we all have to get different plant material and just make sure that we communicate that with our clients. Yeah, so are uh, clients uh, asking for uh, more today than they were a couple years ago, uh, drought tolerant native plants? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I remember, let's say even 12 years ago when this kind of first started our last drought, and rebates started becoming available from local um, water industries. And that kind of started things, but nobody was really interested at the time, just kind of wondering, well, if I'm spending my money on this, is it worth it? I think the people have seen the ROI over the years, the ones that have done it. And now, of course, with, with water prices rising, it's become more of a demand. It's also kind of a fashion trend. I mean, there's a lot of different plants. We'll plant succulents somewhere and they'll be stolen. <laughs> you know, People really like them, whether people are walking by through a mall or homeowners walking through HOAs, they'll, they look cool, they're different, they're low maintenance and you know save on water. And so it becomes kind of this fashion trend of what people like. I think plants go through that all the time. Um, when I first moved to San Diego about 22 years ago, there was a much different plant palette. I was always planting robolinis, birds of paradise, raphiolepis, agacanthus, and now that's changed, which we'll talk about. 
Yeah, it's interesting. As you ran through some of those names, I'm like, wow, that's like uh, uh, <laughs> all the HOAs I see that were built in the 80s and 90s. Is that's yep. the plan? Mm -hmm. So, um, help us out here for a second. Um, you know, what what uh, what's your definition? What do you consider a, a, a native plant? So really by definition, a native plant is anything indigenous to that area. So whether it's here in San Diego, whether it's Australia or Wisconsin or New York, you know, it's anything that grows indigenous to that area, um, meaning not touched by humans, right? So they're able to have a symbiotic relationship with the surrounding environment. So um, really when that affects it and how it affects obviously how we landscape and irrigate is when we're putting a native plant in an area that um, may or may not need water, different kinds of cultural um, touch, you know, so we're treating it a little bit differently. Um, drought tolerant is, is also something that a native can be, it just really depends on that indigenous area. Right. So, um, so, right, so that was my next question is what's the difference between drought tolerant and native? And it's interesting, a few years I, I wrote, a, years ago, I wrote a blog about uh, drought tolerant or native plants and Somebody raked me over the coals saying that a drought tolerant is just a marketing term that uh, people <laughs> come up with in the uh, in the plan industry, and I didn't necessarily agree with that. But uh, uh, you yeah, know. sorry, yeah, drought tolerant is um, basically any plant that can with withstand little to no water for a certain period of time. It doesn't mean that it can withstand a drought for three years. You know, your plant's going to die depending on that plant. Um, you know, there's plants that live in Africa, live in the desert that store water for years. You know, you see cigarro cactus here and that kind of thing. And that that is set up a little bit differently. So something that's drought tolerant is something that can, whether it be for the summer or whether it be for a year, um, it's just a seasonality of not having as much water. Um, you know, kind of in comparison, there's native plants material. Again, use where I'm from, Wisconsin, right? There's tons of native plant material in Wisconsin, but they're not necessarily drought tolerant because that's not the climate of Milwaukee or anywhere in the interior of that state. Now here in San Diego, for example, there's plant material that is native. Let's take Ceanothus. I don't, it's California lilac, right? It grows throughout California a lot. Bright purple flowers in the spring. It's drought tolerant because its native habitat doesn't get water during the summer. Here we don't typically get the wonderful Midwestern thunderstorms in the summer. So it's used to not having any water throughout after spring through the summer and into the winter when we start getting rains again. So it's drought tolerant through that summer period. Um, and that's, and even though it's native. Um, and so that's where we need to look at that when we put that in the landscape. Yeah, that's interesting, you know, and we're, we, as you mentioned before, we, we had trends and we're having trends. Um, and I just want to mention to everybody that we've got the Q&A and the chat open. If you want to ask Stacy a question, put them in there and I'll uh, go ahead and uh, make sure we ask those. Uh, but so speaking of trends, right, what are some of the trends we're seeing right now in drought tolerant native plants? What's getting popular? I do see the succulents a lot. They continue to get more popular, you know, especially in the HOAs or retail centers, for example, hotels. A lot of um, people like to put them in pots, um, still, you know, removing fountains and putting them in different artistic 
uh, situations, especially living walls. That's a big thing, um, especially now as we kind of grow our urban areas um, downtown and retail centers that are kind of those live work retail areas. They do a lot of rooftop gardens and living walls with um, succulents and different kind of material like that. Um, kind of over the last couple of years, it was a little bit of a trend for Australian natives. I know we grew that a lot at the nursery um, and kind of just like any, I guess, native plant, um, there's whether it becomes a trend for landscape companies or just homeowners, clients, if they see something decline, they kind of go, okay, well, I'm, I don't like this plant, it doesn't work here. Um, so that's where we need to look at the culture of the plant and really make sure that we're giving it the right amount of water, sunlight, because it's native to somewhere else other than here. Um, so Australian natives kind of had their time in and out. I personally adore them and I try to use them everywhere too because um, they typically fit that wide range that our clients are looking for. They're looking for low maintenance, colorful, right? Something pretty because we definitely fell away from doing that annual color change every quarter. Um, so something colorful, low maintenance, uh, low pests and disease, and um, you know something that's available like we talked about earlier. So that is really what everyone's looking for. So whether that means native or drought tolerant here, what I see locally, um, that's what they're looking for. The native trend, kind of goes in and out. It really depends on the property too. Um, it, the local kind of consensus with that is, they look so ugly during many times of year. And, um, you know, we have this idea that they're so beautiful and colorful and then the rest of the year when they're maybe not getting water or what's natural to them, they go dormant. And so that's something that definitely needs to be discussed with your client and making sure that they're aware of what it looks like through all seasons of the year. Yeah, so you reminded me of a couple of things. One, I saw a fountain just the other day, and they had taken the water out of the fountain, put plants in succulents. Mm -hmm. And at the top of the fountain, it was one of these cascading fountains. They, uh, I don't know what the scientific name is, but it's the fish hook, you know, oh, that, right. uh, yeah, that, that runs down and over the side. It actually looked like water. I thought uh, somebody did Very a pretty cool, good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it can do some creative things with those plants, a little alien looking different, cool structure. Yeah. And then I was thinking about the Australian plants and it seemed like uh, maybe 10 years ago, I don't know, early 2011, 12, everybody was putting in, uh, again, common name, uh, kangaroo paws. Uh, this was, <laughs> right, it was everywhere. And uh, I don't see them very much anymore. Uh, mm -hmm. Are the Australian plants out? Yeah, that was actually the exact year that I worked at the nursery, Richard, and, um, you know, we were big on the Australian natives at the time. I mean, we were propagating and bringing in so many different types of anagazanthus, the kangaroo paw. And what we found in a lot of feedback from our customers was that the dwarf ones didn't grow as well. Um, there's certain plants when they're hybridized so much or change so much in their, in their genes that they just don't typically work for a long period of time. I think a lot of um, landscapers here have seen that with New Zealand flax formium. Um, obviously came from Australia and New Zealand as well. And then they started getting crown rot here. They would have mildew issues or the hybrids would revert back to the browns or the green. Um, so that's something that they would see happen and kind of get like those re reversions of, of weird growth. And um, whether it was a dwarf pink one, it would end up having kind of a large red flower and that kind of thing. Um, it really stuck to the red and yellow. And then um, they 
again, they started getting crown rot as well because it's management of irrigation and the soils here. Um, I can, again, only speak for Southern California. It's actually the same as Wisconsin, super heavy, hard clay. And that is not good for um, you know, a plant that has an indigenous sandy soil that needs good drainage. So Stacey, we have a question from one of our viewers. And the question is, you know, what are your top three favorite bulletproof uh, plants? You know, ones you know that are gonna do well, uh, uh, drought or no drought, uh, cold, uh, warm weather. Now it is Southern California and so you don't see too much of the extremes, but do you have three that are really, you know, at the top of your list as favorites Good for this? Question. Um, one, I'll kind of uh, out myself right away. I made fun of Raphaelepis earlier, but there's a variety called Umbelata Minor. And um, it's a little bit different. You don't see it grown, or I'm sorry, grown anywhere, planted as much. It's more compact, really dark green leaves. Um, has a really cool structure and you don't need to trim them. They don't have that hedge look. Um, so again, drought tolerant, super easy maintenance. Um, and when I say drought tolerant with that too, we'll talk about this um, soon as well, is just obviously there's an establishment period and once something's established, then it can have some lower water use. Um, those are one of my favorites because they're a good accent. We have to use them a lot in um, narrow planting areas. So in some HOAs where there's garage after garage and then there's one little planter in between each garage, that's a perfect plant for that scenario. Um, another one that I really like like that is um, the Prunus Carolina. Carolinaiana um, for the same kind of use. Um, one of my favorites also is Grevillea, and again, Australian native. And um, there are so many different types and varieties. I think there's still a lot of local nurseries here that grow. You can get some such as the Long John that grow 12 to 18 feet tall. And then some other Noelliae and different um, varieties that stay you know, only a foot tall. Lots of different flowers, flower color, foliage. So I just like things that are a little bit different in that respect. Um, and then sages, um, sages and ceanothus are a couple of my favorite um, California natives. And they're really useful and beautiful in landscapes here, whether it be you know retail, commercial, or HOAs. We just need to make sure we're educating the clients on what they'll look like certain times of the year when we have to renovate them um, and cut them back all the way or cut back blooms. But um, those are kind of some of my top ones that I use in lots of designs. Yeah, those are great. Uh, some of my favorites as well. I love the uh, colors, especially of uh, mm -hmm. some of um, some of the blooms. Um, so um, do, do you have any photos or any uh, examples of these by any chance? Yeah, that's great. Sorry, bear with me too. Um, yeah, a lot of them we'll use in different projects too. Um, like I said, you know, everybody has their favorites and um, Oops, sorry, I'm having a little trouble here. Um, you know, everyone kind of uses their favorites and and kind of sticks with those. I tend to do that as well. Um, now, while you're uh, looking there, I want to ask you too, um, do drought tolerant and native plants, do they, do they have to be irrigated? Good question, Richard. Um, they do. And I, like I mentioned earlier, anytime you put in a new plant, you have to have some sort of establishment period based on what plant that is. So um, definitely need to water them a little bit more. Um, depending on how um, it needs to be um, prepared based on your soil uh, and your area, you know, it could be new construction to um, making sure you have organic additives, amendments to the soil, fertilization, um, natives, 
here anyways, do not typically like fertilizer because they are already indigenous to that area, right? So they might not need, you know, see a lot of landscape companies just going, okay, well, we're just gonna put a shrub fertilizer, triple 15, throw it on there, it'll be fine. And that's not what the plant needs right away. Um, it needs an establishment period of irrigation and then you can dial that down, which we'll talk a little bit more in detail about that too. Um, but yes, everything needs um, some establishment period and then you can back off that based on the culture of the plant. Um, this picture that I'm showing here is a recent um, construction installation project that Landscapes USA did for one of our clients. Um, it's kind of in the La Jolla UTC area. And we actually use Jane Dripline all along these parkways here along the road and then um, MP rotators throughout the slope. There's a large slope, it's about a mile in length. Um, but we completely eradicated, comes back a little bit, <laughs> the red apple ground cover, which uses tons of water and tons of fertilizer to stay green. Um, so we completely um, converted the irrigation system uh, one thing that was really cool, the HOA got a donation from the city of San Diego for 150 trees, their um, Chinese pistache. So we planted those all along the parkway there and they all have their separate irrigation systems. So all of the trees are on separate valves um, with the tree ring of Jane dripline. And then all of the, this is Carissa green carpet, which is actually one of my favorites too, because it is super low maintenance, handle some short periods of drought as well, low water use, we also like to say, right? And um, pretty hardy. I mean, there's dogs, people that walk through here, people throw trash, there's homeless situations, you know, up and down the wall here and on the street. So pretty um, hefty plant, durable for that kind of abuse. Um, so those are some of my favorites here. This um, to the right hand side, you'll see kind of a lower ground cover. That's Ceanothus. Um, it was, this was probably only a month ago. So it was done blooming um, pretty purple by then. And then that's Tacoma yellow bells, Tacoma stands yellow bells, kind of a hybrid Tacoma, which um, they're all in the same water. They're all getting low water use MPs. We have ET controllers there as well. Um, so everything is programmed um, the, the way it should be with the correct data of um, soil type of plant material. We had to switch it from turf or red apple to the type of plant material. And then um, also put in, uh, you know, what type of plant material in sunny or shady exposure and the ET controller basically. We're still dialing in because we just finished this um, probably about month ago, two months ago. Um, but yeah, so this is kind of a whole area up and down. We also have Bougainvillea and some other California natives that are all on the same irrigation system, except for this parkway here with the trees and the carissa. So Stacy, this area is, uh, <clears throat> that was just west of the 805, right, on Nobel? Correct. Yeah, I, I just drove by that about a week and a half ago. Oh, and nice. And people in the car with me, first of all, the trees did catch our eye. I mean, that was okay. a beautiful installation. They look fantastic. And then we caught all the streetscape too, and uh, uh, the job's beautiful. You guys did a really good job oh, on. Thank you. We drove by a lot of landscape that day. We didn't uh, we didn't know we were going to be in that area, and then we were like, "Wow, would you look at this?" Uh, <laughs> so yeah, really really nice job there. Oh, good. Thank you. Um, here's another photo if I can pull it up. This is um, also kind of in the same area. It's a um, science lab. 
and we've had the property for quite a while and um, go figure it was all red apple here that you see that is turf um, that green area is turf there but everything where you see a plant was all completely red apple and so we took that out it was all um, about six inch pop-ups kind of a mix of just different you know heads um, changed that all to jane drip and put tree rings around these magnolias here those were stressed for a while too because they were in the middle of you know getting um, turf water and then not enough water from the shrub zone so we separated those out again trees are on their own separate irrigation zone we also did some deep fertilization with those and some scale treatment and those really pop back. That's why you see a couple that were, you know, a little bit thinner than others. Um, but we put in all new plant material. We've got some aloes there, Leonotus, which is a bright orange flowering, um, looks amazing this spring with all of the hummingbirds and butterflies hanging out. Uh, the New Zealand flax, uh, that was actually there and we kept it there because it was doing well. And then Fucrea mediopecta alba, which is one of my nerdy favorites. And those are those kind of variegated, large agave looking plants here behind that sign. Um, those again, um, pretty drought tolerant and just have a really nice structural accent, all drip line underneath. And um, there's also Hesperello and some other um, uh, Calilophus hartwigii, which is a, California native as well that added a pop of yellow color and red color when the Hesperello blooms. Yeah, so Stacy, I know uh, uh, everybody's talking about Landscape USA in San Diego, uh, especially when it comes to water management. Uh, you guys are building a tremendous reputation for being great water managers and, uh, and knowing what you're doing about uh, water management. Uh, one of the questions that came in here is, when you talk to customers about water management, you know, it's sometimes very confusing for them, right? Because sometimes we talk about gallons, uh, inches per hour. Uh, we have a lot of different terms. Right. Uh, how do you guys talk to customers about water? Um, uh, what works there? Well, that's a great question. Um, one thing I've learned over the many years is, you know, they will, you will always have questions asked, but, um, you know, it's it's hard because you have you have to make sure you know your audience right so here i'm i'm fine kind of throwing out some botanical terms and that kind of thing i'm assuming most people are in the industry at least want to know um a lot of times on walkthroughs with clients they want the basics right they want the nitty-gritty of it they want um also what is it going to cost me so rather than getting into the technicalities unless that is specifically what they're asking for and we do an ROI for them and we sit down with them and go over the numbers with them um, we talk about the basics and especially if it's something where we're coming on to a new site that is not either currently our client or is a brand new client to us we want to make sure that they understand the the landscape health is most important, starting with the irrigation, right? Because we we here are in a climate where we need irrigation in most areas. So making sure that the irrigation comes as first priority, making sure controllers work, making sure there's no leaks, do a full audit of the property, and then just making sure that the everyone is aware of what the um, system is actively doing and what needs to be, um, what needs to change to make sure we have a healthy landscape. 
So like this photo that I have here up, that is the um, same as the previous job, but it's kind of in the middle of the install there. This is where I was describing it was mixed turf pop-ups um, and shrub areas because the red apple was fine with getting the same amount of turf water, but it was still an older property. All of the heads were mismatched. So really I had the discussion with the client of going, look, you have plants that have a certain need and you have your turf that has a certain need and you can't have them, you can't expect them to both be healthy if they don't share the same needs. So this is what we would do and just briefly explain the process. Let's separate the valves. Let's get the trees separate from the shrubs and the turf separate from everything else and make sure that they're on the right type of irrigation and scheduled for the right amount of time. So that's yeah, what we did here. We have the Jane drip line here and then put in some drainage as well. You see that drain at the bottom and then the turf we left the same. Um, and then that was all programmed correctly. Now I love seeing the tree rings around the tree. You know, that's something that uh, you, know, you don't see that often, right? It should be done. It should be a standard practice. Uh, so. It's, right. Uh, and, the, and the great thing about that too, Richard, is that you'll see that inner um, line, you know, we put a couple depending on the size of the trees, it can be three lines. Um, as the trees grow and expand, it's something that can really easily be removed, you know, just twist off those power locking couplings, make sure everything's tight again, and then take off that inner line and you can always extend more out so that you're really encouraging root growth outwards versus, you know, girdling roots and having healthy plant material. Yeah, that's great. It can, it grows with your tree very easily. Right. Mm -hmm. So Stacy, uh, you're getting a lot of people excited about drought tolerant native plants. And uh, for those of us who are gonna go out now later in the week and start planting some more, uh, <laughs> What, what types of practices should we be doing to get them established right? Are there certain ways we should water, certain, um, uh, any um, amendments or anything we should add to our soil to, to help us? What, what about that? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, it's uh, really, like I said earlier, it really depends on the type of plant. So definitely look at that and look at your site as well. Um, we deal with a lot of new construction too. So if you are in that situation where you have new construction, you need to make sure that um, you're probably taking soil samples first. Um, that's, it's really good, especially, like I said, in San Diego, where you... Um, you know, have a lot of new construction or heavy clay soils, take a soil sample, see what's necessary in the, in the amendments and start with that. Um, you have to evaluate that microclimate and just make sure that you have the right plant material there to begin with. If you have the ability to create a design based off of your location, then that's a great start because you have the ability to make sure you have the right plants in the right spot. Um, you know, I'm not going to bring plant material from Northern California or from, you know, the Midwest where it's not going to grow or put tropical plants in kind of a more arid climate and, and Vista here. It's just not going to do it unless you have a different irrigation system. So um, definitely look at the microclimate that you have. Choose the right plant material if you have that ability. Um, sometimes even if we're given plans and, you know, we'll, even have architects from somewhere else that have put plant material in here. I always have that discussion with the client. You know, these plants might not work long-term. Is, is there a substitution that you'd be willing to work with? Or can I work with a landscape architect to make sure that there's plant material that's here long-term um, rather than just, you know, putting something in that looked 
sorry, fit in a book. So, you know, coming from the maintenance side, it's something that needs to happen long term. And I'm in, I'm in turn looking for the, you know, the client's best interest. So if they're going to have to spend, you know, another 10 grand in three years to replace plant material that they just paid to have put in, that's not a good partnership for anybody. So um, making sure that we have the right plant material and start with the right amendments. Like I said earlier, if you have um, California natives, I know they don't typically like uh, those amendments and, and fertilizers instantly. So get them on the right foot with that. And then of course, um, with your irrigation, um, making sure that's on the right system. So, you know, I have a lot of clients ask sometimes, can we just put in new plant material here? Can we do this? And I, you know, even though it is something that I would love to do and, you know, completely clean the slate and put in a new plant palette, I can't do it unless the irrigation system works properly. So, um, because that ends up being on us too, you know, we're the professionals, we're the ones that have to make the suggestion. And if I'm going, you know, yeah, we can put in new plants and then they don't survive and it's my maintenance account, that doesn't look good long-term for us either. So we have to make sure that we're having the right discussion and help the client's budget for that appropriately. Maybe change over the irrigation this year, maybe you know, go with some rebate programs that can help with the budget that way. And then maybe next year we'll do the plant material. But all of that for the initial install. And then of course, after that, when you're doing the maintenance long-term, you wanna look at plant healthcare. And so all of that comes together easily if you have the right plant in the right spot. And then uh, you can go from there. Plant healthcare is essentially what people call now organic gardening, right? So it's trying to stay away from um, pesticides and chemicals as much as possible just by giving the right climate conditions. Um, plants are just like us, they're living things. And if we have stress or uh, low immunity, um, then we are more susceptible to diseases. And so that happens with plants. If there's too much water, not enough water, um, too much sun where they really like shade, they start you know, burning or getting root rot, like I said earlier, aphids, white fly. And it really means they're something else, right? Culturally is not the most ideal situation for that plant. So continuing with that ideal situation for the plant helps the long-term availability of the plant. Yeah, and they rely on us and especially you and your company, Landscape USA. Right. To <laughs> it's our responsibility and make sure, you know, we're giving the right advice. Yeah. So what about smart controllers with the uh, irrigation system, you know, the real brains of the system? Where does this fit in with native and drought it's really helpful. I mean, like the job site I showed you earlier where we have the ET controllers, um, it's really helpful because that was dialed in before as a slope. Um, you know, certain valves were shady areas, certain valves were sunny exposure, but then it also said, you know, red apple use turf, right? Same, same amount of water because it's adjusting based on the type of exposure it has, the soil condition and the plant material that you have. And so it was a lot easier once we were, went in and redid everything to just go into the controller, go in on our computer or the app on our phone and just change over to drought tolerant plants or native plants and you know change that exposure, whatever it may be. And then gradually the ET controller will use the weather, weather base that it has as well as the type of plant that it's really watering. And, um, and show the correct schedule. It's, it's a little less maintenance on our end once it, everything's all tied in because we're letting the controller do the work and schedule accordingly. And of course, you know, we still have to go out there and monitor, make sure there's 
just like any install, there could be some plant material came from the nursery or it's not installed correctly. Something can happen, you know, and, and plant material will get lost. So it's continuing monitoring that and monitoring the irrigation. Um, but I think the, the, the smart controllers are best for that. Um, you know, I was having a saying though over the years is smart controllers only as smart as the user. It has to be a partnership with, you know, whoever is using it. And also like we work together quite closely, you know, with, with the ET and, and Jane community to make sure that we have people helping us where we need it. And I think that is key. You know, there still has to be some monitoring of it and, and making sure that we're all managing it in a good partnership. Yeah, it's a really great points there, Stacey. I, I really enjoy hearing those. And you know, one thing I noticed a few years ago was uh, we saw this a lot in Arizona. People were wanting to know how much water are you going to use on my job? You know, they, they wanted to know that. They even had to put it in your bid. Uh, I'm not sure how they compared one to another, right? Because really, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's really a scientific formula based on ET of how much water you're going to use. But that used to happen. What about customers in this day and age in Southern California? Are they talking in terms of how much water do you use? Are you, you know, how many inches or how many uh, units that uh, I'll be using on my commercial property? Do you hear that? Yeah, some are. Um, some don't care, not interested in that. That's not their priority, but there's a lot that are, and I see more of it. Um, like I said earlier, because of the, the cost in water rising and it's still, you know, it's commodity and we might not have it forever. Um, we want to make sure that um, we're taking care of our resources and, and there's clients that want to make sure of the same thing. Um, the, they do ask, I mean, there's lots of properties that we will either do meter readings or the great thing about the ET controllers that I know we provide for our clients are the reports that it creates. So it'll um, create where where ET is set, right? Where, where based on the weather, it's saying that we should water and then how many minutes we are actually watering. So we can take that into our client and say, okay, here's where we are. We're totally watering under ET. And maybe there's a spike here last week because we had a mainline break or whatever that might be. Um, there's a lot of flow metering um, that clients are starting to ask for too. We usually include that with smart controller installation so that we can monitor flow. Uh, we can have water automatically shut off when there's a break or any other issues so that there's not wasteful water and their cost of their bill isn't going up. Um, so yeah, there's there's it's definitely becoming a trend where people are more concerned and want to know the numbers, you know, especially on the responsibility of us. If, if they're paying for a conversion to a smart controller and a redo of the whole irrigation system, they're gonna hold us accountable and making sure that we're doing what we told them we would do. So being able to prove that we're watering less is a big deal. Yeah, this is really interesting and, and so exciting, right? Because on one hand, if you ask most people, uh, where does your water come from and how much does it cost? Mm -hmm. They don't really know where it comes from. They just say the ground and uh, they're, they're not sure. And how much does it cost? They also say, I don't know, it's expensive. <laughs> they don't really know. I pay a lot. <laughs> right. So you go from that to this is what ET was for the month. This is how much water you use. This is how much water you used last year this month. And this is what the ET was. So maybe we use a little bit more because ET was higher. And maybe we saved some water because ET was lower. But now you, you take something from uh, I don't know and I don't know to this is having really meaningful conversations uh, using uh, one tool 
right? A, right. a report generator from your smart controller. It's, 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 an, it's an amazing uh, span of information in, in a very short period of time. Well, it's, it's kind of like anything nowadays, right? We have more technology, the ability to collect data and, and kind of have a, a conscious awareness of what we're doing in any aspect. So the fact that we can do that with measuring, you know, the water use, which is direct effect on our resources and our pocketbook, pocketbook of the clients, it's something that is becomes more interesting as we realize we have the ability to do it, right? So if we're, you know, initially talking about this with a client and converting possible controllers, that's the first thing they want to know is, well, how much is it going to cost and how much am I going to save? Yeah. So bring that all up front. You know, you guys have always been really helpful with coming out with that ROI and evaluating the property and saying, okay, this is how much you're spending and this is how many years, one to whatever it'll take to pay that off. And then in the long run, this is the percentage of water um, I'm sorry, of the water bill that you will be paying less for because you're watering smarter, right? More efficiently and in a smarter way. And in those situations that we can monitor flow, I mean, it's so nice to be able to <laughs> be out of town and get an alert and say you have a break, but it, you know, the water's off. We don't need to send anybody. That's huge. So um, yeah, it's having that technology available kind of makes everyone more aware and more excited about it. Yeah, and then the other thing that's great is to see Landscape USA establish as a water management specialist. And all of a sudden, mm -hmm. this monthly maintenance account amount isn't as important because, gee, we might pay a little bit more for the monthly maintenance, but we're going to make it up in the water savings. We're going to make it up by a lot. Right. And uh, this really starts to focus the conversation for the customers in a way they haven't had before. So it, it's really great to see. Well, that's a great point, Richard. And it might make some people upset saying it, but you get what you pay for. And, you know, I've never been um, the one to say, you know, I'm, I'm the cheapest landscaper out there. I don't, I don't send out bids to, to be the cheapest. I, I won't do it. You know, I've even seen it at the nursery when we had to fluctuate in plant prices and landscapers were having, you know, requiring lower plant prices because they were passing lower plant prices on um, to their clients. That was 10, 12 years ago and prices are still the same. So, you know, I'm a firm believer in, hey, you know, you're hiring a professional to know the right thing and you might not be paying the lowest possible for your maintenance contract, for example. However, we are saving you X amount by doing this and that's managing your water properly, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it, it all comes out the right way. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, and you do get what you pay for. And boy, a uh, really nice, uh, good looking landscape adds to the value of the entire property. Absolutely. Right? It's not just the value of the landscape. It is the building. It's the property. It's the home. It's the association. It's everything. And, uh, yeah. and it's that pride, especially in an HOA where everybody lives, you know, everybody wants to have that pride and, and walk through and feel good. And so that's, that's the part of, you know, what I do that I really enjoy. So so let's put your uh, futurist hat on for a second. Okay. And uh, what are what what uh, what plants do you see getting popular in the next six months uh, to a year? You know, uh, from a drought tolerant uh, native trend. Is there anything that you think is going to get uh, uh, some extra notoriety? That's a good question. Um, nothing really in particular, but like I said earlier, you know, some of the the plants with the succulents and just different types of semi-native to California. Um, never really kind of stuck, 
like when we were trying to push them 12 years ago, they never really stuck. So I just see kind of more of a growing interest in that. And, um, you know, maybe that would encourage a lot of the plant propagators and, um, you know, other nurseries to create some different plant material or kind of thrive on that. Um, I was really involved with a lot of the propagation um, kind of side of things. And it was really neat to see a lot of hybridized or, you know, something that can handle less water, more blooms, whatever that may be. So I think a lot, lot of the trend will really be from the growers and kind of going, okay, this is what we need to do. This is the future of the landscape. This is the future of low water use and developing some plants that can tolerate that a little bit more with also some pest and disease control because with all of the Roundup <laughs> lawsuits and everything else, um, you know, we're looking for plant material that might be a little more hardy. And if anything can um, have less chemicals, I think that is a good idea too. So it's not really a specific plant to your question, Richard, but it's probably just a more of trend that's something that's easier for everybody to enjoy at this time. Yeah. Well, Stacy, what a wealth of information you've brought everybody today. Thank you so much. Uh, you Thank know, you. somebody messaged me and said we should just have Stacy on every week. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, very, very Thank interesting. You. We could go on uh, for for a long time on this. Yeah, really sorry, I do totally plant nerd out. You know, <laughs> oh, it, it was it was great. I know everybody appreciated it so much. Uh, so, thanks so much for coming on today. I hope you'll yeah, come back in the in the near future. You know, we can talk maybe about uh, fall plants or what to do uh, with your landscapes over the winter. Uh, yeah. One of those would be very interesting. We'd love to have you back. Uh, That'd be great. Yeah. If anyone has ideas too, feel free to send those in and um, yeah, I mean, just, I'd be happy to talk about anything. Yeah. Okay, great. And I want to say thank you to all our viewers. I uh, really appreciate your time. Uh, and remember, you can see all our Jane trainings at uh, the janesusa.com website forward slash trainings. Uh, we're also wherever you listen to your favorite podcast these days, and that seems to have really caught on. I think people are enjoying learning as they're working or driving to you know job to job, uh, using that downtime for something positive. So thank you for that as well. So again, uh, thank you very much, Stacy. We're back on Friday. We've got uh, Mark Eriks, um, award-winning uh, writer, who's talking about uh, water in California. He's just written a book called The Dream Plan. And uh, it really delves into water and out agriculture and what's happening with the water in California. It's going to be very good. So again, Stacy, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks, yeah, thanks everybody. Everyone. All right. We'll see you yeah. soon. Thank you.